Welcome back to the Sculpture Life podcast. It is officially the first podcast of 2021. First of all, I just want to say to everyone listening, we all need to be so grateful and proud of ourselves for surviving the year of 2020. It certainly was no ordinary year with so many ups and downs. We really had to navigate through some really hard emotions and put our resilience to the test, as well as our ability to face the storm while still remaining standing. And I think that amidst all the chaos were some really beautiful moments, lessons, gifts, and blessings that came out of it. It brought people closer together and it had us reflect on what we value and prioritize and what's important. And it also helped us realize that whatever we have been feeling throughout this past year is valid and deserves to be acknowledged. Today, I am very excited and honored to have my longtime client, Dana Ross, come onto the Sculpture Life podcast to kick off our very first episode of the year. In today's episode, Dana is going to be sharing her expertise and knowledge on how we store trauma in the body and ways to emotionally self-regulate in times of stress or when we are feeling anxious, which is very timely because a lot of us are dealing with, stre- in, with stress in some way at the moment. So before we get started, guys, I'd like to give you guys some background on Dana's work, mission, as well as her latest ventures. Dr. Dana Ross is a psychiatrist in the trauma therapy program at Women's College Hospital in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. The trauma therapy program specializes in treating those who have experienced childhood interpersonal trauma. She is also the co-founder of Trauma Education Essentials, which provides online education courses for health professionals around topics related to trauma and mental health. Dr. Ross completed her psychiatry residency at the University of Toronto and at Queen's University. She completed a Master of Neuroscience degree at the University of Calgary and finished her undergraduate degree in psychology at York University in Toronto. She is also a member of the Toledo Dene First Nation. She is incredible, guys, a powerhouse in her field and truly passionate about what she does. So I'd like to officially welcome Dana onto the Sculpture Life podcast. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to today. I'm so happy to have you on, and I hope you're um, ready and feeling energized after our workout this morning. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely am. You put me through the works. Yeah, like I totally find that once you, we were just talking about this this morning, once you do a workout, you just, you know, everything opens up, you feel more energized, good to go. That's Mm -hmm. how I feel anyway. Oh, absolutely. It opens up the creative channel, and so... I think we can all agree, guys, that working out makes everything better in general. It really honestly makes me happy to see put someone through a workout, especially when I could see that if they've been stressed or feeling anxious and they need that release, it's like super satisfying for me. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. I told you I was a bit tired this morning and then we did our workout and now I feel completely myself. So that's wonderful. Exactly. And I think that'll probably, this will probably tie into today's topic about emotionally self-regulating and releasing stress too. Mm -hmm. So let's dive right into the nitty gritty of this. So tell me when we experience, when we're get, when we get triggered due to an external event or stress, what actually happens in the body physiologically? How does the body respond to this? 
Yeah, great question. So there's so much that goes on in the body when we're under stress, chronic and acute stress, but I'm going to concentrate on the autonomic nervous system. And it's a really important system to understand, especially when people are uh, having childhood trauma, but also in times of chronic stress, like in a pandemic, for example, and then everyday stuff as well. So when we think about the autonomic nervous system, there's two parts of it that are really important to understand. So one part is the sympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system, and that's kind of like the gas pedal of the system. So when we're under stress or we suddenly have to get up and run somewhere or whatever, that's the sympathetic nervous system that's getting really activated. It gives us energy, can get our stress hormones going, and that's what we really need uh, in order to survive, get that energy up and react when we need to. Mm -hmm. On the other side of that, is the parasympathetic system, which is more like the break of the system. And so that is what helps to slow us down when we're resting, digesting, all of that kind of good stuff. And these two systems, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, really help to balance each other out. And we wanna be able to have the capacity to go into sympathetic or parasympathetic, but we also want them to be uh, influencing each other so that we can come back into equilibrium when we need to. Right. So, so when someone, so ultimately when someone's experiencing, experiencing some sort of acute stress, um, or chronic stress, so you, so their, their bodies, their nervous system is in sympathetic mode. And then the idea is to try to get it back into balance into parasympathetic so that we find some balance within the body homeostasis, correct? That would be probably one of the most common ways of looking at it for sure. But it's really interesting. Some of the literature shows that if people are under chronic stress in particular, often they'll not just be in sympathetic, but sometimes they'll be in over, like an overstate of parasympathetic. So people will report being chronically fatigued, shut down, feeling like disconnected from themselves and others. So if someone's under chronic stress, they can be in a state of sympathetic arousal, really tight, really tense, all of those kind of things, but also sometimes can be just completely shut down and low energy kind of a state as well. And those, again, we want to have that choice. We want to be able to mindfully choose where we are and be involved in regulating our nervous system. We don't want to be under uh, the nervous system just driving us and us just reacting to that. So that's what happens in trauma. It can be really uncomfortable. So there's a few things I want to go through in terms of how that sympathetic and parasympathetic system get expressed. Mm -hmm. So one is uh, we're going to talk about the relational connection that happens or doesn't happen. Then we're going to talk about fight, flight, freeze, and collapse. Mm -hmm. So when people are under stress, chronic stress, and I work with people who have histories of childhood trauma, so often ongoing, repetitive, interpersonal kind of stress in childhood, they'll often experience their nervous system in either the sympathetic or parasympathetic drive uh, more often than they would like. And so here's what this can look like. When we're under stress in an ideal kind of world, we can reach out for relational connection. And then we get, we get a sense of safety, we get soothing, we get feeling heard, seen, valued. But what can happen, especially with childhood trauma, is that when people reached out for that relational sense of safety, it wasn't met. So either their caretakers might have been abusive or neglectful or whatever the situation is. And so when those kids grow up to be adults that I work with, 
often they've learned that when they're under stress or under threat, they don't reach out for relational connection because it just isn't efficient or effective or it was dangerous even growing up. So that leaves people with four other ways to respond to stress physiologically. Mm -hmm. And these four ways are the fight, flight, freeze, and collapse response. And these are hardwired into our bodies. So we don't have a choice about whether we go into one of these. If we're under threat, we have to go down one of these pathways. Mm -hmm. And so the fight and flight are usually the most familiar to people. So fight, uh, if someone is threatening you or you feel unsafe, you might go into a fight, sort of more aggressive response. But it's important to know that a fight can also be really an internal response. So I could be sitting here uh, if I'm feeling under threat and and just look like I'm just kind of sitting in a neutral-ish kind of state, but inside I'm feeling a whole bunch of tension, a whole bunch of stress, stress hormones are running around and I'm feeling, almost aggressive or assertive, but not in a great way. So that fight response is activated, but I'm not physically behaviorally doing anything. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. And the same thing with the flight response. So that, you know, if we're under threat, we might have this overwhelming immediate urge to run away and leave the situation. Also a really good tactic for survival, right? Uh, But again, sometimes if someone's in my office, for example, really common, I'll hear people say every thing in my body is saying, get up and run out of this office right now. I don't want to be here. I feel unsafe. But because of the work we're doing, I know that's my flight response getting activated. And the problem is it gets activated in situations where I'm not actually under threat, but my body is so used to going down these pathways that it can overtake in the moment. And it causes problems because People don't want to get up and run out of their therapy session, or they don't want to get up and walk out on their boss when they're getting feedback. And so that's where the problem really comes in is when these, these pathways get activated, when people don't want them to be activated. Right. And you said there was one more, the collapse response. There's actually two more. There's the freeze and the collapse. So the freeze is, and these two are less familiar, I find to people, Mm -hmm. the freeze response can be, um, put together with the fight and flight in that it's a high energy, a high stress, lots of stress hormones like cortisol running around, uh, but the person can be frozen. It's almost like a deer in headlights, that kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can see someone just looks like a deer in headlights, but sometimes again, you can't always tell what's happening internally for someone. Uh, and then the collapse response is the opposite end of the spectrum. So this is where low energy, Uh, low stress hormones, and this can be like fatigue, low energy, sometimes actually collapsing. If you think about a cat that has a mouse in its mouth, right? And Mm -hmm. that mouse often will just go limp. Mm -hmm. It's going into, not by choice, this is physiological, it's going into that collapsed response. And it's a really smart way of surviving because what happens in that response is blood is shunted from our extremities, like our arms and legs, into the center of our body, which helps if we get injured, our survival rate. And we also get our natural opioids released into our system, so we feel less pain, and we're less sort of aware of what's going on. It's, it's been described really in an interesting way as collapse is a way to escape when there is no other way to escape. And so all of these things, if we think about them, are really smart ways of surviving and living through uh, stress and threat. And so I think it's really important for people to know about them 
because what I find is there can be a lot of self-judgment. People will say, you know, you know, this assault happened or this other situation happened and I just didn't do anything. I froze or I just kind of didn't do anything. And there's a lot of shame, a lot of self-judgment that comes with that. But if people can understand that that actually was something to do, you actually did a survivor, a survival behavior going into freeze, going into collapse, going into whatever. Sometimes that can get people into a better place of self-compassion and less of that self-judgment and shame. Definitely. And I think that, you know, I can relate to this too, because I started doing work around, you know, the whole being triggered and understanding my own stress responses. I don't even think I was aware for the longest time. And like you said, a lot of Mm -hmm. us aren't until we tune in. And um, like for me, yeah, there's a lot of shame around like the fight versus flight, which is my, which was used to be my, is my typical response, but understanding Mm -hmm. it has helped me to regulate it and really like manage it better, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Right. When we're having this kind of a physiological response and we don't understand what's happening, it can feel overwhelming, confusing, Mm -hmm. and it feels sometimes like the appropriate response to what's happening in the moment. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't, or it's too intense. And it also can just be exhausting to go into these survival responses sometimes. uh, And people don't know they're in it and don't know how to, to move through it as well. So I think that education around just naming and getting familiar with it can make a huge difference for all of us. Yeah. And like you said, it all starts in the body. There's a sensation and I think each of these responses probably have a specific sensation that happens in the body, physiologically that happens in the body. And just, I guess, becoming aware of where the sensations are and what is actually happening in the body. Absolutely. hundred percent. That makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense. Um, Now, So the mind-body connection and how we actually store emotions in the body is also, it's a really fascinating and interesting topic. And oftentimes we are disconnected from our bodies and not fully present with what's going on. How and where do we store trauma and emotions in the body? And where would you say they often show up? Mm-hmm. So lots of different places. And this, again, again, I think is so important to be aware of. So let's start with nonverbal places that trauma, chronic trauma, acute trauma, acute stress can show up. So often when I'm going through this with a client and we're working through where does this live in the body, we'll go stop at the top of the, we'll start at the top of our head and go down to our toes. Um, It can look like all kinds of things. So headache, migraine, jaw tension is a really um, common one. A lot of people hold a lot of tension in their tongue, actually, and aren't familiar with that. And so I often get people to check in and do sort of a sweep from head to toe, and people will notice tension in places that they didn't before. They're really common places for for all of us to hold tension, like our shoulders, our neck. So that's also really common. Mm -hmm. GI issues or gastrointestinal issues like uh, diarrhea, constipation, gas, inflammation, all of those kind of uh, stomach upset issues are really, really common in terms of holding stress in the body as well. We know holding stress can lead to increased inflammation in the body. And it can look like movement. So sometimes people will be, um, you know, bouncing their knee, for example, and that can be a form of of dealing with some of that just stress and tension and moving some of that energy through. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can see people holding trauma and tension in their posture. Uh, So they may be more prone to kind of be tucked in, uh, in a kind of almost trying to defend self kind of a state. 
or they may be uh, really more in an assertive state and you might see that in their posture as well. Yeah. I think one of the main things I hear a lot about too is chronic pain. So the way that stress and tension exacerbates um, people's chronic pain can be really debilitating. And then of course we think we see things like flashbacks. So people um, having either visual flashbacks to things that have happened in the past, but sometimes they're not actually visual. Sometimes people can have flashbacks that are more body-based or more emotional flashbacks as well, which can be very overwhelming, very painful. And then the last really big one that I wanna talk about for nonverbal is hyperarousal. Mm -hmm. And so this I think is a really good one to know about as well. So this can look like all kinds of things, but if you think about holding tension in your body chronically, it can look like having difficulty falling asleep, being very concerned about safety. Sometimes people will say, I know where every exit is in the room. I know where every person is in any room that I'm in. And that helps to make me feel a little bit more safe, a little bit more in control. And hypervigilance, like, which is connected to that sense of safety, but very focused on being aware and trying to avoid any kind of future traumatic events. So those are some nonverbal cues. I'd like to talk about two other things, cognition and then the ACE study, if that's okay. Absolutely. I'm into this. I'm learning <laughs> a lot here. This is like a education for me. <laughs> that's great. So here's one that I honestly think if... If anything in the trauma field could get more attention, it should be the impact of trauma, stress on cognition. So when people come to see me for uh, any kind of a psychiatric assessment, and I only see people who work in our trauma, who are in our trauma program, one of the most common things that I'll hear from people when I first meet them is that I'll say, what are some of the areas that you're most struggling with? What is, what's really impacting you on a day-to-day? And what people will say is, I think I have dementia. I think I might have Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. And I remember being so struck by that when I first started as well and hearing about what an impact that had on people. And so what I was seeing with people actually, what they meant was I'm having trouble with my memory. I can't do word recall. Sometimes I'm in the middle of a sentence and I can't even remember what I'm trying to say or remember what that word is that I'm trying to say. Focus can be really poor for people. So people will sometimes say, I used to be able to read books and I can't even read books anymore. I can't pay attention, so I'll watch a movie, but I don't really know what happened. By the end, I probably missed two thirds of it just by like not paying attention and not focusing and not laying down that memory. And that ability or inability to remember, to recall, to focus, to attention, if we just think about that for a moment, the impact on people's ability to function in their personal life and their work life and their hobbies and whatever is intense and really, really upsetting for people and scary, right? It's scary to think you might have dementia. And because there's not a lot of psychoeducation, I think, in the world around the impact of trauma and stress on cognition, it's natural that people would think that they might have some kind of neurological mm-hmm. issue like dementia, for example. So I think that's a really important one to know. Even, um, I, this just came to mind, but even ADHD and ADD, do, is there some, some tie into some pa- um, past trauma with ADD and ADHD, people having that type of those behaviors and thinking that they have ADHD maybe rooted in trauma? They can certainly run together. So I think one of the things that's, uh, that we see a lot in the trauma field is what we call comorbidity. 
And so I think what the typical presentation of trauma is, is they might may or may not have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, uh, cognitive struggles, which may look like ADHD, uh, all kinds of different issues, eating disorders. So it's very rare I see someone who doesn't have multiple different areas of struggle and or areas of diagnosis. And so ADHD is often one that we see as well. And it can be really complex trying to pull those apart and what, uh, trying to understand what is the impact of trauma in that diagnosis versus are they just two disorders running together or two experiences running together. So it's, I definitely see them a lot and it's really tricky to understand the overlap between them for sure. Yeah, because I find that a lot of them are often intertwined, like even PTSD with depression and anxiety, there's a, they're kind of all happening at the same time, right? To kind of decipher like wh which one's coming from where, right? Absolutely. I think about PTSD as like an umbrella almost. And mm -hmm. under PTSD, there's all the diagnosis that are the formal sort of DSM diagnosis and the way we come to diagnose people. But also under there is like a larger umbrella of depression, of anxiety, of all of these other uh, struggles, interpersonal struggles, everything. And so again, really thinking about comorbidity is the norm here. Mm -hmm. No, that makes Another sense. Thing yeah, right. And another thing that's really interesting to know about is something called the ACE study, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Mm -hmm. And what they looked at there, there, it's an older study, but they looked at the connection between the amount of trauma people had in their lives and their physical health outcomes. And what they found was that there was a very strong connection between as people had more trauma in their lives and childhood, they had worse physical health outcomes, including things that you wouldn't necessarily think of like heart disease, diabetes, all of that kind of stuff as well. So I think it's really important that we know that comorbidity with trauma and chronic stress isn't just about um, other mental health issues that might be running alongside and intertwined, but also physical health issues as well. So that's a whole area that I think needs a lot more attention as well. I agree. And it, to me, it makes sense. I mean, if you've had repeated trauma in your childhood, it does get, you know, it gets stored in the body as a, as some form of stress and can turn into a medical condition if it's a repeated because there's like the acute trauma versus chronic and repeated over time. So to me, mm -hmm. that makes sense mm -hmm, that that absolutely. would that that would actually show up in the body later on in um, someone's life. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And would you say that there's a correlation with the type of trauma the individual has experienced and how they respond to stress as well as the types of behaviors that you'd often see? I think there can be to some degree, but I think it's also important to know that as human beings, we only have so many ways to respond to stress and to trauma, no matter what kind of trauma that is, right? And so we've already talked about some of the common physiological responses that occur, and that can occur across all kinds of different traumas. But I really specialize in childhood trauma, so there is something sort of unique that we tend to see in there that I think is important to know as well. So when we think about childhood trauma, uh, it can lead to all of the core uh, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder that you can see across different kinds of trauma, which includes things like avoidance. And avoidance is something that we, we love in that the 
avoiding feelings, avoiding thoughts, avoiding things that remind people of the trauma has helped people to survive and get to where they are now. So we want to honor that avoidance, but we also want to take note of the fact that avoiding those things can sometimes keep people stuck in their trauma as well. So it's something that we can hold both things about that it has a function and we're thankful for that, but it can also really keep people stuck. And so part of avoidance is starting to just chip away at that in terms of therapy in particular. Mm -hmm. Hyperarousal, we've talked a bit about already. Re-experiencing is along those lines of those flashbacks. Often people have nightmares, that kind of thing as well. And then negative changes in cognition and mood, we touched on a bit as well. But what happens when people have childhood trauma is something uh, that's sort of unique as well is if you think about someone having childhood trauma, which occurs within the interpersonal relationships of that child, it makes complete sense that as they grow up in life, they're gonna have issues in their relationships, their relationships with themselves, their relationships with other people around them, and the way that they understand themselves in the world and the meaning making they make there. And then emotion regulation is a big piece that we often see as well. So. If you're raised in a family that doesn't have an excessive amount of trauma or abuse happening or is, you know, reasonable environment growing up in, you learn how to regulate your emotions by your caregivers and sort of watching them and responding to them and being mirrored through them. But if you don't have a safe environment or one that's chaotic or scary or what have you, you don't really have the ability to learn those emotion regulation skills quite as much. And so a lot of people we see really struggle with, sometimes people will say, my mood is up, down, I can change my mood five times a day, or sometimes I'm feeling fine, nothing's happening, and all of a sudden I'm overwhelmed by sadness or anger or whatever it is that someone's dealing with. So I think that childhood sort of repetitive trauma brings in that relational part, the relational issues and that emotion regulation piece as well. Interesting. And this also probably ties into the whole attachment theory um, of, you know, anxious versus avoidant learned behavior in adult relationships as well, correct? Absolutely. So definitely a huge piece in attachment there, especially in those relational kind of uh, issues that we're talking about. It's very interesting area to, to read more about for sure. Definitely. I still need to read that book, the attachment, the attachment theory book. Yeah. There's there's no shortage of reading for sure. I think another thing that's important to know about uh, trauma is the three brain model. And, and why that is important is because it applies to all kinds of different trauma, but not just childhood trauma, also acute trauma, being in a pandemic, all of these kind of things. So it can be helpful just to have this very sort of simplified model of understanding what's happening in the brain and trauma as well. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways to understand that, and it helps also to know this because it helps to apply skills on different interventions, is we're going to think about the brain as three parts. So there's a top, a middle, and a bottom part. And that's obviously a very, very oversimplified way, but I think it captures enough of what we need. So the top part in our model is going to be the cortex, particularly the frontal cortex sort of behind our forehead, where we do a lot of our thinking, our planning, uh, all those kind of cognitive functions. In the center of our model, we're going to think about something called the limbic system, And in the limbic system, there's something called the amygdala. And the amygdala are two little kind of bean-shaped clusters of neurons on either side of our brain. 
and they're very complex structures, but we often think about them in this model as the fire alarm of the brain or the fear center or emotion center of the brain. And that's gonna be very important to understand the amygdala in this model in a moment. The bottom layer of the brain, we're gonna think of as the brainstem, where a lot of the automatic functions happen, like controlling our breathing, a lot of our fight, flight, freeze, collapse response can be uh, located and driven from there as well, which makes sense because you know, there's a tiger coming at us. We want our, we don't want to have to think about that. We want our brain stem to just be able to kick off without having to talk to our cortex first. But the reason why this model is important in trauma is because of the amygdala. So when we're under stress or something happens around us, or there's a sense of danger or threat, our amygdala starts to really fire. And what happens is the amygdala kind of takes over the show. And if you look on a brain scan, what that can look like is a whole lot of blood flow in the amygdala and not as much blood flow happening in our frontal cortex. And if you've ever been in a really stressful situation, it's not uncommon for people who have experienced, it was really hard to think, to plan, to figure out what to do. And actually it makes sense because there's not as much activity, not as much blood flow in the frontal lobes and that amygdala is firing, firing, firing. What we wanna do is learn skills of how to settle and calm and soothe our amygdala and get our frontal lobes back online so that we have access not just to our emotion parts of our brain, but also to that thinking parts of our brain as well. And so when we talk about sort of skills and strategies, understanding that very basic model of what's happening in the brain can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and this just ties into my last question, which is probably the most important question for everyone. Um, so since we experience stress in a different way, what are some specific exercises we can do to emotionally self-regulate? Is there specific things? Yes, there are. So building on that idea of the three brain model, I think one of the really important reasons why we want to understand that as well is one of the things that I hear commonly from people before they kind of learn some of the neurophysiology of what's happening in trauma and stress is I feel totally chaotic inside. People will use language like I feel crazy or I feel out of control. A lot of self-judgment can come in here as well. And learning some of the fight, flight, freeze, learning some of the three brain stuff can start to put a little bit of understanding and structure in place, which can again lead to decreasing some of that self-judgment, increasing some of that self-compassion, but it also provides us with one way of organizing our approach to different exercises. So one of the things, one of the approaches we call top down and bottom up. And so if we think back to our three brain model, we had the cortex at the top, amygdala in the middle. And so let's think about that for the top down part. So what we mean when we say top down is how can we use our cognitive brain to calm and soothe that center of the brain, the amygdala. And so then we're thinking about cognitive things like counting, naming things, looking around mindfully, orient orienting to the present moment. What is the date? Where am I? Who am I with? What is my name? I'm talking to others, supportive others and reaching out, writing in a journal, affirmations, and doing things like mindful meditation. So all of these kind of things and more, but anything that really brings in the cognitive mind 
is going to activate and get blood flow there and not let the amygdala be so overactive, taking over all of the activity in the brain, right? And so that's that top-down approach to skills. And so one of the really common ones we use often in group therapy is we'll say, everybody look around the room, name everything that you see that is blue and just start saying it out loud, popcorn style. And so everyone will be kind of shouting out everything that they see that's blue. And sometimes people will say, you know, why are we doing that? It seems a bit simplistic, right? Some of these things. But when they understand what's happening in the brain and body, it can kind of put that in context a little bit more. So let's just break that down for a moment. Think about all of the things that are happening. When we stop, we start to orient our head around, we start to move our eyes, we start to activate our frontal lobes because we're now thinking about the color blue, we're looking at different objects, we have to think of what their name is, so we have to word recall, and then we have to speak out loud to say what it is that we're noticing. So actually that simple sounding exercise is a very complex neurophysiological exercise that can again, get the frontal lobe activated and really start to calm and soothe the amygdala. So that's the top down. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And yeah, and it's just really tying into just becoming, you know, mindful and anchoring yourself back in the present moment. So ex- so when you're feeling that stress response, it's all about just bringing yourself back to some centered state, right? That's right. Through yeah. these exercises. That's right. And then we can also think about bottom up. So now we're thinking about using the body coming up through the brainstem to calm and soothe the amygdala uh, from that direction. And so then we're thinking about body-based or somatic things like stretching, exercising, walking, running. There's a lot of uh, literature around yoga and trauma as a treatment that looks very positive. Mm -hmm. Massage, uh, if you feel safe with a hug and there's a safe person in your environment, that might be something. Taking a bath, weight training, Boxing, I'm hearing a lot about kickboxing and different kinds of boxing from uh, people these days who are finding it a really great way to move some of that energy uh, through the body as well. And so it's really good to have a mix of both top-down and bottom-up skills because in different contexts, on different days, different intensities of of triggers or whatever is happening for people, sometimes you'll say uh, for someone might be like a three out of 10, a four out of 10 in terms of feeling overwhelmed. And in that case, for that person, maybe journaling, uh, doing a little mindful meditation is enough. And that's going to kind of center them a little bit, maybe get them down to a two out of 10, one out of 10. But maybe when that same person is at like, you know, an eight out of 10 in terms of feeling activated or overwhelmed or what have you, that same mindful meditation isn't as effective. And in that case, for some people, it might be, I need to get up and stretch. I need to move around, get on the bike, whatever it is that works for people. And so you want to have that flexibility to say, okay, I've tried some bottom up. It's not working today in this moment. I'm going to try some top down. I'm going to mix and match and be able to think about using your full body from the brain all the way down to the toes to help you to regulate, to help you to soothe that amygdala and feel a bit better, feel more in control, feel more present. Yeah, I really, really resonate with that actually. Because even when I think about myself, like if I'm at eight out of 10 stress response, I definitely need to put the gloves on and start boxing or go for a run because a a mindful meditation or breathing exercise or journaling just won't do it. But, you know, if I'm feeling like, like you said, like lower on the spectrum in terms of the stress response, journaling or just doing a, you know, calming breathing exercise will do it. And I think I've learned over the years too that 
I used to only have one outlet and that was exercising hard to manage, but now it's nice to kind of have that balance of like more, mm-hmm. um, like just more well, more rounded approaches to handling a stress response versus just, you know, going all out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that rounded approach idea. I think, yeah, I I wish that people would hear more about this. So I'm glad that you're doing this podcast because I think when we think about self-care, self-soothing, we often are thinking about, you know, that taking the bath, that slowing things down. um, And all of that is great. And sometimes that's exactly what you need in the moment. And so we want to have those skills and strategies as well. But sometimes we want to just be able to say, okay, I'm feeling activated and I'm trying to breathe. I'm trying to slow things down. It's not working. I'm going to go the opposite direction and see if I can move some of this energy through in a different way and activate myself a little bit more. So I think that just expands and rounds out people's toolbox. 100%. And it's a different somatic experience and emotional release when you're actually physically moving stuff through the body versus again, like if you're in a, you know, the stress response is on the lower end of the spectrum, you know, the breathing and the calm, um, calming meditation and journaling will do it. So, and that's what I've learned over the last couple of years. And it's just balancing things out. Now, this has been amazing. Now, what I, before we close this off, I want you to tell us a little bit about your newish, well, newish venture, um, the trauma education essentials, because I know I have a lot of friends that are in the health profession, therapists, social workers, psychologists that actually may benefit from this program that you offer. So just give us like a little bit of a breakdown Mm -hmm. of what you offer and then we'll finish off. Sure. So when I started working as a staff, I was getting a lot of emails, a lot of calls from different colleagues saying, I don't have as much training in trauma or I don't have any training in trauma. Where can I go? What can I read? What can I learn? And it became uh, so much that I realized maybe we need more out there. And so created this company called Trauma Education Essentials, where we um, work with healthcare professionals and we offer webinars and different courses online. And uh, we focus on mental health in general, but mostly on topics related to trauma, where people can really learn from experts around the field um, on different topics and feel more confident about understanding trauma, about what they're seeing, about how to apply this. And this is for health professionals uh, from you know, physicians, nurses, uh, so psychologists, social workers, massage therapists, like everybody who works with people uh, essentially could be could benefit from some of uh, the stuff that we talk about. There's also a book review, a newsletter I put out every month that has different sort of handouts, different little pieces in it and different kinds of resources. So what we're trying to really do is just get more out there and make it more accessible, more affordable for people to do training and to access more uh, information. Amazing. And guys, I know I have friends. I know my friends, you guys in the health profession, I want you guys to check this out. So the website is uh, www.traumaedessentials.com. So Trauma Education Essentials is the business and traumaedessentials.com is the website. Amazing. And I'm going to put a plug in on the podcast anyways, if you guys forget, but thank you so much for coming on. Today was amazing. I certainly learned a lot. Um, and I hope you guys did too. Thank you for coming on, Dana. I'm definitely going to have you back 100%. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's really been a pleasure to be here. So thank you, everyone. Welcome. And thanks for tuning in, guys. And until next time.